you have your copy of God's Word, you can open it up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. That's where we'll spend our time this morning in Scripture. But before we read the text this morning, I want to lead us in a, a prayer of thanksgiving and petition for, um, for ESL, our, our ministry of ESL. That's going to be our, our focus this morning for the prayer of thanksgiving and petition. So would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come to you as Lord God, creator of the universe, and it's amazing thought and captivating thought that you look down upon your people, that you are involved in our lives, that you care deeply for us, that you've even given us of your Holy Spirit, that you dwell among us, and that of all things, Christ, your Son, gave his life so that we might have life. We've been singing about that joy this morning. Lord, this morning we thank you for your goodness toward us for all of these things and for many more provisions that you have made. For you have blessed our lives in countless ways. You've blessed our congregation with families and children. Lord, you've blessed us with friendships and uh, you've blessed us in incredible ways. And so, oh God, we give you thanks and we praise you. Lord, this morning we also lift up a petition before you for our ministry of ESL, English as a Second Language, to people who are foreigners in our country. Your gospel is clear that the good news of Jesus is for all nations. And so, Lord, we thank you that you have brought people here to us that we can love and we can share the hope and the truth about Scripture with and that we can teach how to speak this language so that they don't feel like outsiders in the midst of a foreign country. We want to pray for that ministry. We ask God that you would continue to bless it, that you would cause it to prosper, that you would grant it favor in the eyes of of the different foreign groups that live among us in our city. We pray for Michelle as she leads the English, the ESL ministry. And we also pray for all those who are workers and servants in it, that you would bless them, Lord, that you would grant them your favor and that you would lead them by your Holy Spirit as they seek to minister to people uh, who don't know you, uh, who are trying to learn something new in in a different place. And so we pray, God, that you would use that ministry to bring the light of your gospel into the midst of people's lives, into our community. And now, Lord, as we turn our hearts and our minds toward your word, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, for it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. The title of the message this morning is, What Shall We Do? from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. And as we think upon this theme of repentance... I wanted to kind of give a a brief intro to uh, the text and where we're at and what we'll be reading this morning. Over the Christmas season, right, we covered through Advent the first two chapters of Luke's gospel, and 30 years have passed since the birth narratives of chapters 1 and 2 in the story. And once again, the word of the Lord, it says, comes to a man, comes to John, the son of Zechariah. 
This is one of Luke's key themes in the birth narratives of chapters 1 and 2. There's been a 400-year silence, and all of a sudden, God breaks into this silence by giving his word to the angels, to Zechariah, to Mary, to Elizabeth. And we see that over and over in chapters 1 and 2. And so God breaks into the silence of the last 400 years to announce the arrival of his Messiah. And so I want to begin reading in chapter 3, verse 1 through verse 20. Listen to the word of the Lord. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region, Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the reign of the high priesthood Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain shall, and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather wheat into his barn, but the chaff will burn up with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. You know, it would be it would be easy to skip the majority of verses 1 and 2 and just get straight to the meat of verse 2, that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. But if we did that, we would miss the rich context of Luke's writing. The last names of verse 1 and beginning in verse 2 have significance because they have some historical context in the time of John's ministry as well as in the time of Jesus' ministry. We're not unaware of the damage that massive flooding can cause. 
From hurricanes to flash floods, we're people familiar with flooding. Many homes, in fact, and families in our city were flooded during the devastating floods of 2016. Even some in our congregation during the summer flooding of 2019. You know, it's one thing if we know and expect that it's, it's going to happen, that it's coming. We can make plans and preparations. But when we don't know that it's coming and it comes unexpectedly, the damage is multiplied, sometimes exponentially. We say things like hindsight is 2020. But if we can know ahead of time with clarity, with the clarity of hindsight, I feel confident that we would actually make preparations a little bit differently. Had I known the damage that would come through Hurricane Katrina and the loss we would suffer, I would have rented a U-Haul, packed everything in it, right, and drove out of the city. But needless, needless to say, I didn't. If someone would only have come and announced urgent danger, massive flooding is coming, make preparations now, get out, then maybe we would have responded differently. This is, in essence, what John the Baptist is doing in, this, in these verses. John's urgent message is one that throws caution and it encourages and it exhorts people to take heed and to be ready for a different kind of danger that's coming. The danger that's coming is, is judgment of sin. So as we read this text, we ought to be asking, but how can people avoid this danger that John is announcing? And we see it through the call that he issues out. He says, repent, right? Repent and be baptized. Repentance through baptism. Luke's intro story of John the Baptist not only dates his ministry, but behind the list of names, it, it places the story in a, in a setting of oppression and misery. Augustus Caesar had ruled the Roman, as a Roman emperor until his death in AD 14, and then a man named Tiberius Caesar took over. He was a ruthless emperor. In fact, he was already being worshipped as a god in the eastern parts of the empire, Herod the Great had two sons, Herod Antipas and Philip. They ruled the territories of Galilee and, and the region of Iturea and Trachonitis. But most Jews didn't consider Herod's sons as real rulers. The high priests weren't much better. He mentions their names, Annas and Caiaphas, and he kind of turns the narrative from the political to the religious scene. And it was the religious scene that was just as dark as the political. The people of Israel knew something had to happen. And it was against this dark political and religious backdrop that John's ministry begins around A.D. 27 to 29. And then verse 15, notice in verse 15, it tells us that the people were in expectation about the Messiah. Devout Jews had been waiting for a new word from God. They were waiting for God to make good on the covenant promise that he had with his people, to deliver Israel from these dark days and, and, and to deliver them from bondage once again. They were waiting for this promised messianic king to arrive who would put down their enemies. And so when this fiery prophet, John the Baptist, shows up on the scene, proclaiming and announcing this good news, throngs of people tra uh, travel to his area where he's speaking, and they take notice and they begin to listen. Not only was John's ministry a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, right? We see it in verses 4 through 6, as written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Here is the setting. Here is what's happening. 
John the Baptist is in the wilderness proclaiming this good news. He is the forerunner of Christ, the Messiah. And his call to repentance through baptism was a call for the people of Israel and all who heard it, a call to spiritual renewal. It was a call to return to God, a a new exodus of sorts for God's people. Just as they had passed through the waters of the Red Sea and then the waters of their Jordan on the way into the promised land, so now they're being called to pass through the waters of baptism, to go to the Jordan to be plunged, signifying their repentance and their readiness to return to God. So John came preaching that a right relationship with God must begin with true repentance. And the sign of that repentance was baptism. True repentance is accompanied by God's forgiveness. So John's ministry is one of preparation for the coming Messiah. And this is what it means to prepare the way of the Lord. This is what Isaiah was talking about, to make straight his paths, to level the valleys and to level the hills to straighten the crooked paths and make smooth the rough places, John is laying out the highway of repentance for all people to see. So this morning, what I want us to see is spiritual renewal is what believers in the church need today. Spiritual renewal, this is what the church, this is what believers need today. So first, we note that genuine repentance is the beginning of true relationship with God. Genuine repentance is the beginning of true relationship with God. We see it in verses 1 through 14. John's call to repentance is a call to change the way one thinks. That's what repentance means. It means to change one's mind, to turn away from the old ways of sin and return to the way of God. This is a call of spiritual renewal that we ought to hear as well in John's words. And so we see that genuine repentance brings about a change of character. A change of character in verses 7 and 8, because in verse 7, when John calls him a brood of vipers, and he asks them, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? He's getting at their character here. There's some in the crowd who, like snakes fleeing a brush fire, are trying to escape, but they really have no intention of changing their evil nature. They simply want to go through the motions so that they can be considered part of this renewal movement, but they really don't want to change anything about the way that they're living. As I read that, I thought, you know, is this how we approach God in our sin? We're fine with correcting sin in everyone else's life, but when it comes to our own lives, are, are we ready to confront and deal with and do the hard work of being purged of sin in our own life. Verse 8, the second part, kind of makes it clear that they're dependent on their ethnic heritage for being acceptable to God. Look at what he says in verse 8. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. You know what's going on here? They, They thought that because they were Jews, they would enjoy the blessing and privilege of God's covenant. They thought that because they were Jews and descendants of Abraham, they would enjoy this special status with God. But what John is getting at is really the only way to be right with God is through true repentance. True repentance, which means that our lives become very different from the old way of life. 
Because here's what repentance does. Repentance prepares our hearts to encounter God, and it invites the fullness of God into our lives. It prepares our hearts to encounter God and invites the fullness of God into our lives. Like the crowds of John's day, we must not presume upon God. We must not think that we have some special status with God outside of a relationship with Christ and outside of living repentant lives. You know, many people falsely believe that family ties are church membership or some position or status make them acceptable to God, our church attendance, or even giving, or any number of good works will make them acceptable to God, but this just isn't true according to Scripture. What does it mean to repent of our sin like John is calling the people to? It means to recognize our sin before holy God, and it means to forsake our sin, to turn away from it, and then to live holy and righteous lives. And this is what brings about a change in our character, in who we are. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, for godly grief produces repentance. That is godly sorrow. It produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. A right relationship with God isn't determined by who we know. It's not determined by our status or, or by our position or, or what we do. Luke is setting us up to see as we walk through the gospel of Luke that a right relationship with God is directly determined by how we respond to the Messiah. A right relationship with God is a direct result of how we respond to Jesus the Messiah. And so the change of mind that happens through repentance When we encounter the gospel of Christ, it changes our character. The reality is that who we are outside of Jesus is insufficient to merit a right relationship with God. Because it's the power of the gospel that changes us and that transforms us. But not only do we see that a change of repentance, genuine repentance brings about a change of it. It brings about a change of action. It doesn't just bring about a change of character, it brings about a change of action. Notice what John says in in verse 8. He tells them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You know, I I think about this in relationship to parenting and children, right? Especially if your children have siblings and they do something to, to one another. They get in an argument, they get in a fight, they push, they hit, they do what children often do, and we try to make them say, tell your brother, tell your sister you're sorry, right? We, that's what we want to say. And they walk up and they're sorry. But they don't really mean it, right? They're not really sorry. What they're sorry about is getting caught. <laughs> they're sorry that they got caught in the midst of doing something wrong, but, but there's not been any heart change. There's not been any turn of of direction in their obedience and their desire to live in to live in peaceful community with one another, right? If only our homes could always be peaceful, but they're not. And it's not only the same for it's not it's not just for our children. It it's it's the same in our lives as well. When it comes to repentance, we we must be sorry. We must turn 
change of mind, turn away from the sin that has entrapped us. And true repentance is not only to change our character, but it it changes the way we act. We become different people. And the reason we, we learn about this, the reason is because the Holy Spirit works in our lives in order to transform us, in order to form us and to shape us into God's people. Three times in verses 10 through 14, a question is asked. You know what the question is? What shall we do, right? What then shall we do? So they're saying, okay, we we repent. Now, what does that mean? What do we need to do? What needs to happen in our life in order to show that we have repented? John is saying, if your actions are consistent with a truly repentant heart, then you'll change the way you live. And look, he gives some examples. They're, They're not exactly what we would expect him to be. We might think that John would say to do something like, to, to be penitential, right? To go and do certain acts of, of kindness. Or, or we might think that he'd say to be ecclesiastical. Commit yourself more devoutly to the synagogue for all of the Jews. Or maybe something more devotional. Pray through the Psalms consistently. But John centers his answer on ethical deeds and the treatment of others. Because John understands that we're all image bearers of God. And the way that we treat one another says something about our character. It says something about the transformation that God has made in our lives. I think there's a danger here, though, as well. The danger is to think that that because we carry out some ethical behavior, that we will earn God's favor. You know, being advocates for social justice or social reform or volunteering at a homeless shelter or giving to the poor, these aren't what justifies before God. John is, is saying to let true repentance mend your ways and that we must bear fruit that's in concert with a changed life. In other words, these, these deeds will flow out of a repentant life, but they won't be the justification for a relationship with God. This is kind of what James hits at in the New Testament as he's writing his letter to the church. And so in verse 11 to the crowds, John says, live generously. You have two tunics or two undergarments, give one to someone who has none. You have food to eat, then share with the one who's hungry. Tax collectors say, well, what shall we do? And he says, you need to carry out your vocation with equity and fairness. Our soldiers, they say, what do we need to do? And he says, don't abuse your position in verse 14. Or verse, yeah, verse 14, don't abuse your position. Don't abuse your authority. Be content with what you have. Don't cheat people. And so what we see is that fruit that comes from repentant lives produces change. It produces change in the treatment of others. We become a people who live with generosity. We become a people who who treat others with equity. We don't abuse position and we don't abuse authority. We don't cheat people. One of the good indicators of our spiritual health is seen through the way that we treat others and so quite simply we can ask the question are we generous with what we have do we give with a joyous heart as we bring our offering or our tithe and lay it before the lord do we always want more so that we can hold it tightly you know perhaps one of the greatest battles that that western christians face is that of contentment being content with what we have But this is exactly what John warns the soldiers about. What shall we do? What does true repentance look like in our lives? 
Christian, what does true repentance look like in your life? Not just, not just the facade of repentance, but true repentance from sin. Is there an area that if you were there, and John the Baptist is speaking about repentance for the forgiveness of sins, is there an area of your life that God has been dealing with you in that brings, that's brought to mind right away? What's the biblical prescription for dealing with that? It's to repent. To seek forgiveness from the Lord, to confess your sin and to turn, to have a change in character and a change in, in action. Well, what's at stake? It's a great question. In verse 9 and verse 17, he lays out what is at stake. John speaks toward the coming judgment and he, he really shakes the foundation of those whose faith is superficial. Because God is no fool, he sees all. And for those who claim to have faith in God, but, but really have no fruit in their life, he says they'll be cut down and thrown into the fire. Do you see it there in verse 9? Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. A similar picture is given in verse 17, where Jesus, standing with a fork in his hand, separates the wheat from the chaff, and that which is good from that which is bad, and that which is bad is burned up. But that which is good, he says in verse 17, gather that wheat into the barn, but the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire, never being satisfied. What's at stake? Eternal life is at stake. Eternal life. Those who claim to believe in Christ but have no proof of a transformed life, they'll be as those that Jesus speaks about in the Sermon on the Mount who come to him on that day of judgment and say, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and in your name do all these works and cast out demons? And he'll say to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness the mark of genuine repentance in a person's life is faith in action. James champions this in the, in the New Testament. In James chapter 2, verse 14, listen. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And then get this. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You see, the mark of genuine repentance in a person's life is faith in action. John is saying you need to live out what you're professing to believe. It's a message that the church desperately needs to hear. Confession, repentance... Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Like the Jews had grown so complacent in their religious lives, he is calling them back to spiritual renewal. Perhaps that's what believers in the church, especially in the West, needs today. Spiritual renewal. The coming before God with transparent hearts and minds. Confessing and repenting of our sin. Secondly, we see this morning... True, a true relationship with God means that we will surrender to the superiority of Christ in our lives. A true relationship with God means that we will surrender to the superiority of Christ. 
John shows us what being surrendered to the superiority of Christ looks like. And like John, if, if we're to be surrendered to the superiority of Christ, we will have a humble view of our own worth in comparison with Christ. A humble view of our own worth in comparison with Christ. We see it in verses 15 and, and 16. Think about John's situation. Throngs of people, like multitudes of people, a lot of people, coming out to listen to him preach. They're gathering daily. It, it, it might be easy for a man attracting such crowds to let things go to his head, right? To begin thinking highly of himself. But John's ego remains in check, and he humbly tells the people, in fact, that he is not the Christ. He's not willing to allow any glory to be directed his way. He knows his role as a servant of God, He knows his role is to point all people to Jesus. And it strikes me that at times we might actually stand in the way of people seeing Jesus. I'm not necessarily talking about overt sin that would cause other people not to see Christ, but but we get prideful. And at times we, we fail to give God the glory that he deserves. And we want to receive the glory because it feels good. We want to receive the adulation because... We enjoy being built up. John tells them, the crowd, those who are asking, in comparison to Jesus, he says, I'm not even worthy to serve in the most insignificant way. I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. He's mightier than I am. My power and ability pale in comparison to his. In fact, to remove the sandals of a person was reserved for the lowest of low as a slave's job. And John's humility shows forth when he says that he himself is unworthy to do this very menial task. The reality is that John was the greatest of men, but even he realized his unworthiness to get on his knees before the Messiah. And my my point is, I think we would do well to recognize such a humble posture before the Lord of glory, to recognize that Jesus himself is superior in every way, and that we approach him When we approach him, we ought not approach him brashly, but with reverence, humbly. I know Hebrews says that we can come to the throne of God in confidence, in boldness, and I'm not advocating that we forget that, but I am advocating that there be a a reverence and a humility in our relationship with God through Christ. I think we would do well, well to recognize such a humble posture before the Lord of glory. Do we have such a humility when we approach Christ? Do we have this humility of mind even in the way that we treat others? But secondly, this morning, when we, when we recognize the superiority of Christ, we will announce the good news of Christ. Note in, ver- in, the, in, in the second part of verse 16, in verse 18, John's ministry in the Spirit It is in some way a model for Christians in announcing the good news of Christ and calling people into God's kingdom. He, He knows the empowerment of the Spirit. In verse 16, he says, I baptize you with water, but what? He who comes after me is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's saying my baptism of repentance prepares you for his coming, but he'll give you power from on high. He'll give you the helper. He'll give you the Holy Spirit. He'll baptize you with fire. In other words, refining and cleansing and purifying your lives from sin and wickedness. And he'll give you power to live for him. 
one of the New Testament doctrines that we affirm and believe. All Christians are baptized by the Spirit when we believe in Christ. The indwelling Spirit directs and purifies our lives. The Spirit empowers Christians to live boldly for Jesus. When we read His Word, it empowers us to understand His Word, to faithfully serve Him in advancing His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. This is part of what the Holy Spirit does in, in every believer's life. But hear me out, not, not all believers equally submit to the Holy Spirit's leading. That's why Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19, he writes, Do not quench the Spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. You see, what the Holy Spirit did through John is what the Spirit always does. Jesus would later say in John chapter 16, verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so we see that, verse 18, he says, So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. John's ministry was one of proclaiming Christ to the world and pointing people to Jesus. And this is exactly what the Spirit leads us to do. So are we, are we ready and faithful to announce the good news of Jesus to people? Are we ready to declare God's goodness in our lives to others? Thirdly, when we recognize the superiority of Christ we will not fear to call out evil in the face of evil. And we see this in verses 19 and 20. Herod locked John in prison and ultimately killed John because John spoke against his sin of stealing his brother's wife, Herodias. John was an open critic, an outspoken critic of Herod's evil acts, but he wouldn't stand for injustice and evil. The stakes were too high for John the Baptist. He preached the good news of Christ, which means repentance and judgment. You know, we read through this passage, and we get to verse 18, and it says, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. And we think, man, he's been calling people to watch out for judgment, that fire will burn, and those who aren't faithful will be thrown into the fire. How's that? How's that good news? And the reality is that when the good news of Christ is preached, it means both repentance and judgment, a call to repent and turn from our ways, and then the reality of if we choose not to repent and turn from our ways, judgment. The message of the gospel is for everyone. And unless evil and wickedness are permanently dealt with, there can't be good news. But this is what Jesus does. He deals with evil and wickedness. Christians are called to stand in the midst of darkness, to call out evil and to call people to repentance because there's no neutral ground at the cross of Christ. We're either for Christ or we're against him. We either submit to Christ or we reject him. 
And the truth is, God sees our hearts and he knows whether or not our repentance is genuine. God calls us to live by the Spirit, to bear fruit in our lives that shows we are repentant. What shall we do? In response to the gospel, what shall we do? Shall we believe or shall we reject? In response to the call of repentance, shall we confess our sin? Or shall we obstinately stand against the Christ, the Messiah, who came to take away sin, to pay for it himself so that we don't have to? Spiritual renewal is what believers in the church need today. I pray that the Lord pricks our hearts toward spiritual renewal, not to stand obstinately against him. I pray the Lord pricks our hearts toward repentance of our own sin. I want to encourage you, right where you're at this morning, take time to repent of your sin. Take time to surrender to Christ. If you're here this morning as a person who doesn't believe in Jesus, and your heart has been convicted this morning over Jesus and the superiority of him, I'd love to talk to you and answer any questions you have about what it means to surrender your life to Jesus. And I'll be willing to do that after the service is over. One of our elders will be on this side of the the worship center by the cross, and they would like to speak with you about it, and we'd like to answer any questions. This morning, maybe for you as a Christian, you recognize that you've been running from God, you've been harboring sin, you've been hanging on to it, allowing it to have a foothold in your life. Confess that before the Lord this morning. Turn from it, repent of it, and seek Jesus, seek his grace, seek his mercies that are new. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond as the Lord leads. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we come before you this morning, we confess, Lord, we know that you see everything about us. Things that we don't want anybody else to know, you already know them. The struggles that we keep internally in our own hearts and minds, you, you know those struggles and how they weigh and battle within us. They weigh us down, they encumber us, they snare us. They cause us not to speak boldly when, when we know we should. Father, forgive us of that. Draw us near to you. Lord, we thank you for the grace that we have in Christ who came not to condemn, but came to forgive. Strengthen us, O Lord, to seek your face, to truly seek repentance, to seek spiritual renewal. Lead us by your Holy Spirit, O God, and direct our steps, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you.